today and how much is too much and why are we supposed to stay on the alert and all that good stuff. Proverbs 20 uh, down to verse 13. Verse 13, do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Thankful, Father, for the liberty and freedom that still exists in most places around this land. Thankful for the state of Texas and the priorities of our governor, lieutenant governor, and, and uh, everyone, Father, that is providing the guidelines that we can still assemble uh, in a safe manner, Father. Thank you for uh, all of your faithfulness. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Proverbs chapter 20, and uh, we almost, I think, finished this up last week. We talked about sleep a little bit. We were actually talking in verse 12 for most of the hour last week, uh, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. And that's kind of a proverb that's like, uh, well, duh, you know, of course, um, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, what, what are we talking about? Isn't it obvious? And yet you and I live in a generation and a day and age in which the obvious is no longer obvious. And the what God has designed and what God has created is now completely denied and you be called a hater if you preach what the Word of God says. For example, uh, male and female, He created them. Okay, And that's, that's the plain reading of Genesis. That's the normal it's been understood by the Christian church for 20 centuries. And uh, Jesus quoted it and said, in the beginning. And, and so here we have it. But today, if you say male and female, he created them, well, then you hate trans people or you hate homosexuals or whatever the case may be. Same thing here. And I think, the, of course, the ear hears and, of course, the eye sees. This is how it was designed. Okay, It's not an accident. It's not a freak of evolution that we just you know, these creatures that didn't have eyes decided, you know, they would survive better if they had eyes, and so they evolved eyes. Uh, No, God created the eye, and God created the ear, and the design that goes into these things is part of what uh, we uh, study in terms of uh, irreducible complexity and other other, uh, issues there. But anyway, so as we were discussing it, we find that there is a benefit, and I'll put the slide up here, that functioning according to God's design is actually pretty simple. Functioning according to God's design, both physically and spiritually, and really any way you want to talk about it, functioning according to God's design is actually pretty simple. Accept the wisdom of His design and function accordingly. Don't get mad at it, don't argue against it, don't try to overcome it or thwart it. Uh, why, Why are you doing that? His design is His design, and in the wisdom and glory of His plan, this is what we're doing. And so, uh, anyway, it's pretty simple. He's the one that designed the mouth. He's the one that teaches us our words. He's the one, and in all the verses that we looked at, I don't want to repeat what uh, what we taught last week, but when Scripture says something specifically as far as His design and His intention and His purpose, well then, we need to get on board. We're His fellow workers, and it's His plan, not our plan, that, that we're pursuing from Alpha to Omega. 
And uh, case in point in 1 Corinthians, the idea that woman was created for man's sake, not man for the woman's sake. And that's specifically described. And yet here we are in our day and age where we have these gender wars going on and rebellion and all the rest. So anyway, that's verse 12 and I think a lot of wisdom that we can glean out of that plus the the, uh, the other passages that we looked at. We move past that to get to verse 13. Now sleep is necessary. We need sleep and with insufficient sleep we're in trouble. And God designed our bodies as such that we're supposed to have rest and, uh, and I think that physical pattern teaches us spiritual lessons as well. So we learn about rest in a lot of capacities. We learn about the Sabbath rest. We learn about the spiritual rest in our priesthood from the book of Hebrews. And there's, there's important principles as it applies to rest. So we're not denying that uh, sleep is necessary. If you become a total workaholic and have no sleep, then uh, you're going you're gonna to wear yourself out and, and die in pretty short order. So let's... Uh, Let's deal with this and we'll talk about uh, why the sluggard is, is in trouble and uh, how it is that we're supposed to be working and diligent and, uh, and all the rest. And then take it across from the physical realm to the spiritual realm because wakefulness equals being on the alert. And uh, if you're asleep at the switch, if you're asleep on guard duty, that's no good. We've got to be awake. We've got to be on the alert. We're commanded to be on the alert in the uh, angelic conflict. So, um, and I... Usually the, uh, the morning of a Proverbs class I'll try to get to the website and uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. This is my cheating method. I, uh, I browse last week's MP3 file and I fast forward to the end of the class and then I try to listen to the last minute or so just to kind of remind myself how far we got, where we left off, what, what I promised to cover the following week. Because I'll never remember. I've got to go back to the website and listen to the mp3 file. So I don't, I failed to do that this morning. So uh, I don't recall where we were, but that's all right. We'll just pick up here and and take it and see what the Lord does with it. Um, Do not love sleep or you will become poor. All right. It's necessary, but we're not supposed to love it, right? Uh, You know, it's not a command to love sleep or to love food. I mean, God provides these things and, and there are foods that we do love, but the Bible never commands us to, to love any kind of food or to love sleep, and it's a problem with too much sleep. Remember this uh, song that, that the, the sluggard composes in Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. And so, uh, you know, this is like the, the snooze button, just one more snooze, one more snooze. And, uh, and, and the, the mental attitude that's reflected in that is the mental attitude of the sluggard, who does not want to get up, who does not want to go to work, who does not want to get done what he's commanded to get done on any particular day. And that song sticks around for years. In fact, there's a, a longer version of it in Proverbs 24, 30. And here's a, here's a man that made a career out of singing this song for a long, long time. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface, surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Now that didn't just happen. That didn't happen overnight. That's reflective of long-term negligence on this man's part. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. When I saw, I reflected upon it. This is, you might notice every month when our newsletter comes out, there's a, a, an article in there called 
reflections and uh, it's what we think back to and reflect upon in the recently completed month. So um, I'm working on that for, for this week because Sunday morning is when our, our uh, newsletter comes out and uh, I've got to try to figure out what my reflections are for the month of, of July. Uh, but this is the verse that gets quoted in that, in that portion of the newsletter. When I saw it, I reflected upon it, I looked and received instruction. So what do we learn when we uh, reflect upon these things that we observe? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come in as a robber and your want like an armed man. So a little bit of an escalation to the violence there. A little bit of the, the terminology is adapted a little bit. It's no longer just a, a vagabond and an armed man. It's now a robber and an armed man. Anyway, so um, we have that. Now with the uh, wisdom literature, with the Proverbs that's admonishing us against being a sluggard and, and against, uh, you know, go to the ant, O sluggard, and, and other warning passages that you can have too much sleep and uh, just as a reflection of your, of your lazy spiritual life, there is a counterpoint that we have to balance this with. And this comes from Psalm 127, also written by Solomon. Psalm 127, there's two of your 150 psalms in the Bible that were written by Solomon, and so they go well with the book of Proverbs. And in Psalm 127, this is the counterpoint. It doesn't, it's not telling you to throw out all those other verses about the sluggard. They're also in the Bible. We don't, we don't put these passages in opposition to each other where, they, uh, where they're adversarial, where one has to be true and one has to be false. They're all true. Every scripture is true, so we harmonize them together in this way. Anyway, unless the Lord builds the house, the labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And so uh, there can be a human approach, a human attitude that, uh, that, that forsakes sleep, that stays awake, but it's through his own human effort, it's apart from what the Lord is doing, he thinks he's going to accomplish something himself. And, uh, and no, you're wasting your time. So that's, the, that's carrying the, the pendulum over the other direction, trying to do something apart from the Lord. You got that? So unless the Lord builds the house, God's not in the building project, what are you doing? You're trying to build something apart from what God's not doing. Uh, they labor in vain who build it, unless the Lord guards the city. The watchmen keep awake in vain. You know, you can be the best guard person ever and, uh, and you, you're staying awake and you're drinking coffee and you're on the alert, uh, but the Lord's not guarding that city. In fact, the Lord gave that city over. That city's getting conquered and, and I'm glad you're awake to see it, but you're, uh, you're, you're at cross purposes with what God is doing here. So that's verse 1 that leads right into verse 2 then. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. And uh, so again, the context is it's apart from what the Lord would have for you to do. That you're trying to do something in human effort to thwart what God's doing. So it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. That's your clue. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Or he gives to his beloved sleep. That, that you have to realize that everything God's doing, you're God's fellow worker, that means you have to accept what God provides. And if God's providing you the sleep you need so that you have a good day of work tomorrow, well then accept the sleep that God is providing for you. He is providing you this sleep, so don't reject God's provision 
and try to forsake that sleep and, and put in some extra hours and, and thwart what God's doing, accept what God's doing, including the, the sleep that He gives you. So the sufficient sleep that He gives you. Alright? Am I making sense? So this, is, this should be balanced out. We're not going to go to extremes in both directions. We're not going to be the, the sluggard on one end that takes too much sleep. Everything God provides and then doubling it and doing more. you know, Or too little sleep by rejecting what God provides and trying to, trying to thwart God's plan through, through human effort. Alright, so we're not taking the, 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 there's two sides to this story and we're accepting both for the truth that they present in the context that they present it. Alright, now wakeful work does satisfy that's the second part of verse 13. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. That is, when you're in the will of God, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you know, who, what, where, when, why, how, when, when you're doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons, uh, then, then the satisfaction is there. And it's there not because you've, you've done it yourself with your own human effort. No, it's satisfying because you know that you are in the will of God, that you are His tool, that He is working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure, and it's very satisfying to, uh, to be God's fellow worker on God's terms as the, as the Bible portrays it. So open your eyes and be satisfied with food, and that has to be your spiritual eyes looking at things with a divine viewpoint. Right? Because if you take off your spiritual eyes and you're just looking at things in human terms, uh, you're going to set yourself up for dissatisfaction. You're going to be uh, disappointed and you're going to feel like, oh, it's not as good as it should be or it should be better or I'm not doing enough or uh, I don't see the results I expected to see or, or whatever it is. You end up with a human disappointment because you're looking at it with human viewpoint instead of divine viewpoint. Proverbs 10 verses 4 and 5. Poor is he who works with negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Not only, so it's, it's, a, it's a double contrast. Remember when we taught this? The, the, the negligence versus the diligence, that's, the, that's one contrast. And, uh, and your personal experience is, is personal uh, destitution, that you are poor, you experience the, the circumstances of being poor. But then the consequence is not being rich, the consequence is making rich, which I find to be extraordinary. The hand of the diligence makes rich. And that's a slight difference from being poor. It's not being poor and being rich, it's being poor and making rich, which is a marvelous description. Our Savior was poor, yet He made many rich. And that's the the reality we function in in our spiritual life. That, uh, yes, the hand of the diligent, yes, you can be rich, you can accumulate wealth, you can, you can experience the personal blessings of abundance, but more important than that is that you can convey the personal experience of abundance and be a, be a conduit, be a tool in God's hands, be a vessel of grace to enrich others with, uh, with the grace of God. So I like that. Verse 5, he who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. And so you got to understand where you are and where God's placed you and what season is it? Is it a time for work or is it a time for rest? There is a time for both and just don't mix them up. <laughs> and don't, uh, 
And don't uh, use the excuse that, oh, well, it's not a time for work. Yes, it's been a time for work. You're late, you're negligent, you're a slug. And uh, don't confuse the, uh, the times. If you're sleeping in harvest, you should be out there reaping. All right. Proverbs 12 and verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Really, is heart deficient. The term for sense there is the lave in Hebrew. It's the lavav or the lave, the heart. Lacking heart. You have a heart deficiency. You actually do yourself heart damage to the core of your being. We've discussed this. It's, this idiom has been used many times and we've covered it in, uh, in our Proverbs series. But to, uh, to damage your own heart, the, the, not the blood pumping organ in your, in your chest, we're talking about the core of your soul, the core of your being. And um, by pursuing worthless things, you're doing heart damage. And no, you need to be uh, busy about your father's business, doing the work that he's called for you to do. And, uh, and, and the way he's designed it, if you put the labor in, the increase will come. That's how this world functions. He designed it this way. That's how the, the physical uh, earth works. That's how uh, the, the cosmos is arranged. Now Satan can pervert some certain things, but the basic function of the cosmos, it is what it is. Do the work and, uh, and see the increase, see the benefit. Uh, Proverbs 13.4 The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Benefit to the soul because of your diligence. You actually enrich your soul. Ephesians 4.28 He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. So it's not just in the Old Testament. This pattern is here for the New Testament as well. Christians should be the hardest working members of of any workplace, of any team, of any crew, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. So we not only are we working to support ourselves, but we're working for an abundance to be able to share with others, to lift up the body of Christ in, uh, in this way, performing with his own hands what is good. It's always better. This is a weakness of mine. I'm, I'm uh, horrible with tools. And, uh, and <laughs> I've known this all my life. The, the army proved it with different aptitude batteries. It's, it's staggering that you can score off the charts in, in certain aptitude areas, linguistics and, and, uh, and other aspects. I was in the, you know, the 99 percentile beyond everybody else. But when it came to mechanics and when it came to schematic drawings of you know, lever A and pulley B and rope whatever and all the, when it came to that, I was so far down in the, in the percentiles, they had to invent a new one for me, that uh, I mean, practically, like, what kind of what kind of idiot are you? What are you doing? And um, anyway, it's it's just it is what it is. The recruiter couldn't believe it. How can you be so high in this area and so retarded in this area? That uh, back then we used the word retarded. We don't do that anymore. But that's so that's how I scored on uh, on the test. But this principle is, and so here's where I'm hurt. Okay. The principle is working with your own hands, performing with your own hands benefits you. You know, if, if you can fix it yourself instead of paying somebody else to do it, then there's a there's a, a benefit, a financial benefit. And if you can do it yourself, 
The more you can do yourself, the better performing with your own hands instead of paying the other guy to do it with his hands. Okay? Anyway. Performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. And, uh, and so there you have it. Alright, that's Ephesians 4.28. 1 Thessalonians 4. And these are all well known to I think most of us, at least in the New Testament. We've taught these in different passages, in different series at different times. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Isn't that beautiful? Because it almost seems contradictory. If you're going to be ambitious, do we, do we usually associate ambitious people with quiet people? Okay, But it's not contradictory at all. Be ambitious to be quiet. Have it as your ambition. You know, what are your goals in life? You're going to conquer the world by age 30. You're going to do whatever. You know, you've got these ambitions. And to have a peaceful and quiet life, that's a great ambition. And attend to your own business. And work with your hands, just as we commanded you. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So you, you work, you take care of yourself, you provide for your wife, your kids, you take care of your family, you have an abundance, you want to be able to course in the church age, you've got to support a local church ministry of the Word of God, you've got other missions that you support, there's other things that you're involved with, and when your brothers and sisters uh, run into some trouble, you're there to help. That's why we're a family, that's why we take care of one another in, uh, in these ways. Second Thessalonians 3.10 If a man will not work, Neither let him eat. I don't know about you, but I like eating. <laughs> All right. So since I'm fond of eating, uh, work is not optional. You've got you to work. That's what Scripture says. And, uh, you know, even in the, in the under law in the Old Testament, they had procedures. They had for the widow and the orphan and the poor of the land. Uh, but it wasn't just, uh, you know, handed to them. For, for They had to go out and glean. They had to go out and work. That uh, the, there were portions of the field that were set aside You'd have a square plot of land. They would, plot, they would uh, harvest it in a circle. That meant the corners were, were left for, uh, for the poor of the land to go and, and glean and, and obtain food and, uh, and all the rest. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So in, in earthly terms, this is what we deal with. Uh, sleep is necessary. It's not to be loved. Too much sleep is just an excuse for laziness. And uh, you got to, you know, get off your butt and go to work. Carry that now beyond the physical realm to the spiritual realm because we have spiritual passages, passages as well that tell us to be on the alert. Actually, we're in one right now in our Colossians series on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. In the Colossians series, to, 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 uh, to beware. And uh, they, uh, lest no one take you captive, we're told. Uh, to have your eyes open and to watch and see so that no one becomes your plunderer. And, uh, and if you're not aware of these things, then it could easily happen. If you think it can't happen to you, think again. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It can happen to anybody. So uh, have your eyes open. And that's, this is the, the, the thing. When you are on the alert, you're not caught by surprise. I don't care who the, the toughest boxer you ever saw get in a, in a, in a boxing ring if he doesn't see the blow coming, he can get knocked off his feet, of course. You've got to see it coming. You've got to have your guard up. You've got to be ready for it. Block it, dodge it, don't get hit. Because if you don't see it coming, man, you can be, you can be plastered quicker than anything and, 
that, that other guy is just as strong as you are and he can, he can knock you down. All right, so spiritual wakefulness. Here's some of my favorite. This is by no means exhaustive, <laughs> okay? By no means is this an exhaustive list, but it's a good sampling and, uh, and I appreciate these. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, especially us in the church age. Let me tell you, believers of all stewardships, believers from, uh, you know, before the church was Israel, the Jewish dispensation, and they, they had to be on the alert. Believers in the, in the Jewish dispensation, he got great examples of that with Daniel and his friends, and, and uh, Joseph was on the alert. And you've got, you've got plenty of examples in the, in the, even before Abraham, in the dispensation of the Gentiles. Uh, they had to be on the alert. You know, if Adam, Adam and Eve would have been on the alert, maybe they wouldn't listen to that, that serpent. Okay? So there's always a call to be on the alert. But in the church age in particular, more than any other stewardship, probably even more than the tribulation, I'm guessing. All right? I'd have to think about that. But we are in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And in some respects, uh, you know, we think the tribulation is, is the, the most severe thing this world's ever experienced, and it, in, in a way it is, but it is not the church age. It is reverting back to the stewardship of Israel. I, w- I would submit that our conflict is why we have armor. I, I don't see tribulational saints putting on the full armor of God. I don't see the, the tribulational saints uh, wrestling with the, the, the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers. Those are passages that apply to the church age. See? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll give that some thought. Let's look at Romans 13 though. Because spiritual wakefulness is particularly vital and is particularly vital in the dispensation of the church. So do this knowing that the time, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. This is the age in which we live. And however long we've been saved, we are that much closer to the trumpet, which means we are that much further into the end times apostasy. We're that much further into the, the, the intensified stage as we understand it. The night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to his loss. And see, this is where you can preach it. This is how you should preach it. This is not preaching against sin in a Bible-thumping legalistic kind of way as if, uh, you know, in, in all the terrible ways that such things get preached. This is in the context of believers with their eyes open to the darkness in which we live. And we are on the alert. And, and we, we need to be on the alert. And the whole thing about you know, not doing those sins is let, let's, not, let's have the, the, the emphasis placed the way that it is because it's not fitting for us in the member, as members of the body of Christ. That to be, to be wrapped up in those things is to close our spiritual eyes and, and just uh, surrender to the darkness that we were called out of. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to us lost. So this is the experiential sanctification based upon our position, the positional truth that we have in Christ. Anyway, this is our spiritual wakefulness. And the time past is sufficient. The night is almost gone. 
the, it is already the hour for you to awaken. Uh, salvation is nearer than when we believed. However long, you know, have you had a season of, of reversionism? Have you had a season of, uh, or two seasons, or three seasons, or you know, depending on how long you've been saved, maybe you've had 20 seasons of, 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 uh, of, uh, of reversionism. Well, however many, that's, that's enough. And however long, that's enough. Stop it now. Stop it now. Get in fellowship, stay in fellowship, keep putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Day after day, as long as it's called today. Because uh, it's already the hour. It's already the time. However long you've been in darkness, that's long enough. Ephesians 5.14 For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. You ever think about that? How you're in operational death when you're carnal, when you're out of fellowship, when you're walking in darkness? And Christ will shine on you. So therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time, making the most of your time. Especially if, like I have and probably many of us have, you realize that, uh, that, that time of, that unproductive time of darkness, that, uh, you know, that's long enough and it's, you can't get it back. It's gone. And, and you don't beat yourself up with guilt, but you have to just realize, all right, that's gone. I'll never get it back, but I'm going to redeem the time moving forward from this moment forward. Maximum time in spirituality. Minimize my time in carnality. Confess sooner rather than later. And uh, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Anyway, there's so much more there in Ephesians 5. We can keep going all the way to chapter 6 and find some more armor there. That'll go well with the uh, armor we already looked at in Romans 13. By the way, I think it's two sets of armor. The armor of light is our ready status. That's on the alert. That's in the that's uh, when we're, our eyes are open, we're on guard, it's our basic duty uniform at all times. Then, when it's time to go into the real slugfest of, of frontline combat operations, then we don't take off the armor of light, we keep on the armor of light, but we put on top of that the panoplia, the full armor, the Ephesians 6 armor. So I think we wear both, uh, Romans 13 and Ephesians 6, in, uh, in the frontline combat operations. All right. Finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8. By the way, weren't we just in 1 Thessalonians? We were. It's up there on the slide, a little bit higher. Chapter 4. In chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, where we're talking about uh, earthly work, we were talking about working with your hands and being diligent. The the earthly application in chapter 4, now we've got a spiritual application in chapter 5. For you are all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. See, take it back to the fundamental realities of who we are in Christ. That way you don't, you're not just a Bible-thumping legalist and you're not wagging a finger at those sinners and the bad sins that they do. You know, we're, we're preach, Yes, we do preach against sin, but we do so in the right way for the right reasons. We are sons of light. Does that, does that shape how we think or how we operate? It just, it makes that long list of, of real bad sins, it just, it makes it unthinkable. Why would I be doing that stuff? I'm a son of light, I'm not of darkness. We're not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, they're sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Until it really gets bad, 
then you're sleeping and drinking round the clock, day and night. Understand the, the intensification of, of the sin nature. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Wow, now we've got three suits of armor. Romans 13, Ephesians chapter 6, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. How do I wear three simultaneous suits of armor? How does this work? Okay? (laughs) I don't know, I'm still working on that. The fact is, spiritual wakefulness is vital. And if you can be an earthly slug, you can also be a spiritual slug. And it's the spiritual slugs that get taken captive. The spiritual slugs become plundered by the plunderers. And uh, being held captive by Satan to do his will, they, uh, they stir up so much trouble in a local church, it's, you wouldn't believe it. And it, that's what we're looking at. So Colossians uh, chapter 2 is dealing with that. And uh, we'll have more to say tonight and in the upcoming classes related to the captivity that you can have a spiritual captivity held captive by Satan to do his will and, and still be a very well-respected member of the church. People will uh, think, wow, look how busy this person is. Yeah, they're busy because they're serving Satan. Pretty sad. All right, so that's the issue of sleep. Getting back now to Proverbs 20. After the sleep verse, we have the shopping verse, verse 14. Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes his way, then he boasts. Bad, bad, says the buyer. In the Hebrew, it's rock, rock. Actually, there's some Hebrew questions about this verse. Um, There's also a missing Septuagint on this verse. We don't have the advantage of the Greek. Uh, We're in this stretch of the chapter where there's some manuscript puzzles and uh, some things that we need to work through. Um, but let's, uh, let's understand what it's saying, what it's not saying. Let's not try to read too much into it. Proverbs 20 verse 14 does not illustrate dishonesty. I'm convinced. Uh, you might disagree with me. You'll find commentaries that will disagree with me. But I don't believe it, indi- it illustrates dishonesty. Yes, there's boasting in the second half. But you're kind of reading into it to think that he's boasting about how he got over on the, on the victim. And uh, there, I don't believe there is a victim. I believe there's a buyer and there's a seller. And neither one of them is happy until they're both happy. All right, Proverbs 20 verse 14 does not illustrate dishonesty, but rather the negotiated give and take between two parties in a free exchange. So uh, my view will be the minority view, and of all the commentaries you've read, maybe 20% of them uh, will take this view. Most of them, the overwhelming majority, think that this guy's just a snake. This guy uh, ripped off the, the, the seller, he said, bad, bad, and he, he convinced the seller that the thing was worthless, and so the seller dropped the price below what it was really worth, and, uh, and then the guy goes away with a carnal boasting, and celebrating his victory over the chump that he cheated. Okay? And that, I mean, you can read it that way, but it's not necessary to, uh, to, to force all of that in there. And, and I think if we take a step back and maybe look at the larger view of things, and especially as we see how it's linked to verse 15, 
I think the poetry of 14 and 15 tie them together and, um, and, and both verses are positive. Verse 15 is obviously positive and if 14 and 15 are tied together how can 14 be so negative with 15 being so positive? That's what sold it on me as I was wrestling through the, uh, the poetry on this. All right. So is this dishonesty? No, no, we get it. If you're the buyer, if you're the buyer and there's a product and, and, you're, and here's the thing, this, this verse, the A part and the B part has two separate scenes. In the A part, you're face to face with your seller. In the B part, you're down the road. You're no longer near the guy. You're no longer dealing with him. It's, it's after the sale. And so you're saying one thing when you're face-to-face, you're saying something else when you're no longer face-to-face. That doesn't make it hypocritical. That doesn't make it uh, sinful. That doesn't mean he's lying when he says bad, bad. Unless you read it into that and then you insist, well, it has to be a lie. Maybe it is bad. (laughs) And he says it twice. Why does he say it twice? Because this is what you do when you barter. This is what you do when you negotiate. This is what you do when you're a buyer and a seller. This verse does not give us the seller side of the conversation. I wish it did. So maybe we'll read into it ourselves and we'll imagine what the seller might be saying. Bad, bad, says the buyer. Good, good, says the seller. Because this is what happens in a transaction. So... um, is this buyer, is he lying? No, he's just saying the things a, a buyer says. <laughs> All right. By the way, the, uh, the term for buying, the buyer here, is the Hebrew kana, And it's the one that we did a tremendous amount of work on in Proverbs 8 because the Lord begat me, acquired me, purchased me, birthed me, whatever. Kana just means to get, the getter. So there's a getter and a giver. And we, uh, we I don't dispute the idea that it's a, a financial transaction. There, I think clearly in the context it is a financial transaction here. Because they're verbally communicating with each other that seems to be a commercial exchange. A free exchange. So I don't mind with Kana being translated as buyer. If it was a, a childbirth context you wouldn't use buyer there. You would have a Uh, somebody that's birthing a child. All right. Anyway, that's Kana, the buyer. And every buyer is going to say bad, bad. Because this is the negotiated give and take between two parties in a free exchange. That you have somebody who is handing over money and you have somebody who is receiving the money. Right? And the buyer would love for the price to be cheaper. During the uh, trade encounters, the buyer prefers a lower price and the seller prefers a higher price. I mean, when I was uh, at uh, Maxwell Dodge and, and uh, you know, ordering, ordering Lydia, um, I, I would have really liked it if, if I could have bought Lydia for, you know, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, you know, I mean, that would have been, uh, that would have been great, you know, but a car as sweet as Lydia is not going to go for hundred bucks. Um, you know, it's, it, it was a bit more than that. 
And, and, and so, you know, I might, I might throw a price out there and the salesman laughs at me. And then he, uh, he throws a price out there and I laugh at him. And, you know, this is what happens. This is a negotiated arrangement. Because in order to enter into a free will exchange, I have to decide that I want to do it. And he has to decide he wants to do it. Which means there's going to be some give and take. And I'm not going to get everything I want. He's not going to get everything he wants. So, obviously the buyer prefers a lower price. He's going to say bad, bad. The seller wants the higher price. He's going to say good, good. And, uh, and he's going to hype all the positive things about why, you know, you've got to pay extra for purple, okay? No, 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 I'm not paying extra for purple. And uh, anyway, so you go back and forth. This is what you do. It's not dishonest. Unless, um, you know, you, you really have to read into it to see a liar. It doesn't say he cheated the guy. It just says then he worships. And this is part of the problem too is because um, when we say hallelujah, when we say praise the Lord, uh, a praise is, is a boast. A praise is a celebration of how awesome God is. And in context, a boast is a great thing if you're praising the Lord. In context, a praise, a boast is a terrible thing if you're claiming the credit and glorifying yourself. All right, now we've got plenty of scripture to illustrate this and to try to find passages to do this is not hard. And maybe you guys have better examples than I do. Um, but these are the ones that I just came up with. Genesis 23, Sarah has passed away and uh, Sarah lived, the wife of Abraham, she lived 127 years. So she was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac, she's now uh, Isaac's now 37, not married yet. All right, 37. So Sarah never meets uh, Rebecca. Sarah dies in Hebron, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, the land of Canaan. Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. This is the humility of Abraham. He doesn't say, God gave me this land, and under the Abrahamic covenant, I'm seizing everything I want, and y'all can just, you know, pound sand. He, no, he is very humble before God because the Abrahamic promise remains a promise. Yes, it's his land, but it's his promised land that has not yet been ratified, not yet been finalized and given. It's between him and his seed, and the seed's not here yet. That is the person of Jesus Christ. So he goes to the Hittites and he says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dad out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dad. In other words, take what you want. Free. It's yours. We will, we will allow you use of anything that's ours. And this is the opening offer in the negotiations. And you think, wow, free, that's a pretty good offer. How are you going to beat that? Ah, but wait a minute. Notice the choicest of our graves. Our graves? 
free? Wait a minute, no, no, not your graves. I'm buying this and this is going to be my burial site for Sarah. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land and the sons of Hath, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah. Now, it's a specific person for a specific plot. Plot of land, a cave. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. See, his ownership by name by surveyed plot of ground for the full price. See, all right, the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. In other words, we have witnesses. This is going to be notarized. This is going to be, these are the procedures of the day. Today, of course, we would have to do, uh, you'd have to search for a lien on the property, you'd have to do a title, probably buy some title insurance, you'd have to have a negotiated broker. Um, I mean, we have laws in place, and these are good laws, because it's the rule of law that, that verifies that we have the, the privilege and blessing, we can contract with one another, and our government is designed to enforce uh, our contract rights. All right. So Ephron was uh, sitting among the sons of Heth, And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all who went in at the gate of his city. That's where business transactions took place, at the gate. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dad. So now it's still, it's a gift, but it is a transfer. He's not saying it's my cave still. He is offering to give the cave. But he's still saying it's a gift, no charge. Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people in the land, saying, if you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. So he insists. He says, no, I won't accept the gift. See, a gift has to be freely accepted, even if it's freely given. And Abraham's not going to function on that basis with this man. The Lord is the one that gives to Abraham freely. And uh, he's not going to put Ephron in that capacity. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dad. <laughs> you know, very polite way to throw out a number out there, and a very polite way of saying, This is just, you know, it's chump change for billionaires like us. Okay? Now, I don't know how rich Ephron was, but Abraham was, was very rich. Abraham listened to Ephron, and since that number had, was, had been thrown out there, he accepts it, weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. Notice, commercial standard. That again, weights and measures. God hates it if there's uh, unequal scales or if there's uh, cheating going on with, uh, with, with flawed uh, balances. If you've monkeyed with your scales so as to cheat your... Uh, your deal there. All right. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of its border were deeded over. Notice that? There is documentation. It's in writing. It is on the record. There are witnesses. 
deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. So after this Abraham buried Sarah and his wife, uh, his wife in the cave, the field of Machpelah facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. In fact, we're going to see this cave again and again and again and again. Because Abraham gets buried there, Isaac and Rebekah get buried there, this is where the patriarchs are buried. It's uh, still is a tourist attraction to this day, it gets attacked by Muslims quite a bit, um, defiled and, and so forth. For the field of the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. So this shows us the back and forth, it shows us the give and take, it shows us a negotiated process whereby the buyer is not thrilled with the first couple of things that he hears. So he repeats himself. The seller has to repeat himself. It goes back and forth. So you see what I'm saying? This chapter illustrates Proverbs 20 and verse 14. Bad, bad, says the buyer. Doesn't mean he's a liar. It doesn't mean he's cheating the guy. It just means that they're going through two or more rounds of discussion whereby he doesn't like it, he doesn't like it, but then eventually he does like it because he's walked away, he is still a buyer. It doesn't say bad, bad says the guy who doesn't buy anything. It says bad, bad says the buyer. After two times saying bad, he says, okay, I'll do it. And he buys whatever it is and he walks away. All right. Genesis 31 Here's a long chapter. We won't read it. We'll just look at verses 7 and 8. All the negotiations between Laban and Jacob reflect this. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me for the 20 years that he lived there with Laban and to have his wages changed ten times. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. And every time Laban tried to change the deal to cheat Jacob, um, Jacob ended up making out like a bandit. He was, he was you know, making money hand over fist. But it wasn't because he was so manipulative and, and cheating, it was because God was thwarting Laban and Laban's trickery. So anyway, uh, you can think of uh, employment as a buying and selling negotiation because the uh, you know the the worker obviously wants to make fifty bucks an hour, and the uh, the boss wants to pay five bucks an hour, and so you know somewhere between those extremes is going to come, you know they're gonna they're gonna give and take, bad bad says the buyer I can't work for five bucks an hour I need ten I need twenty you know so they 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 haggle they bargain. This is normal, and God designed it this way. God designed for human beings to, to negotiate, to talk, to communicate, and to agree. You know, and even the Father and the Son had to negotiate, and Jesus didn't like the price he was about to pay. He said, Father, if it's possible, let me let this cup pass by me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In, in, if two parties have a, have a difference, well then, do you, does one su- submit to the other, or, or what do they do? Anyway, uh, Numbers 22, Balaam and Balak. He'd gone once with an offer and Balaam 
was told in a dream, you can't curse these people. These are God's chosen people. You can't curse them. Now Balak is going to come back a second time and, and up the offer. Balak again sent leaders, more numerous and more distinguished than the former. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly. I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. This is a name your own price kind of a gig. The king says, name your price. <laughs> and Balaam, that's, that's his language, right? He's the, he's the for-profit prophet. He, he wants the money. He says, well, let me... Uh... He was already told he can't. And he tries to say, you know, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. You know what Balaam just did there? He did the same thing that Ephron did back in Genesis. He named his price without naming his price. See, Ephron said, oh, what's 400 shekels of silver between men like us? Balaam's saying, you know, if Balak gives me his house full of silver and gold. (laughs) What a slick guy. All right. Now please, stay the night here. I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. What else? You know, if you read in the Scripture and you find the will of God and you know this is the answer, and, but you don't like the answer, so then you say, well, let me see if there's something more. Let me go see what else the Bible says. Okay? Then you're not humble before the Word of God. You just want to find an excuse to justify what you're doing. All right. This is why God shows up at night and, and uh, He's going to use Balaam as a tool here to, to curse Balak. Anyway, we're familiar with the story. So there's three examples. Maybe you've got more uh, other examples. But the buyer doesn't like the price. The seller doesn't like the price. They're going to meet somewhere. But eventually, through the negotiated process, how did I phrase it? The negotiated give and take between two parties in a free exchange. At a certain point when the negotiation is finished, there will be a free exchange. And the buyer, he, uh, you know, he may not be 100% thrilled, but he's not so dissatisfied that he walks away from it. There's no, you know, nobody's holding a gun to his head and making him buy it. And the seller, again, maybe he didn't get everything that he wanted, but he's at least happy enough to, to part with it. And uh, when, so when they reach the point of sale, then it's a voluntary free exchange and both the buyer and the seller are profited. It is a win-win. For the buyer is profited, the seller is profited. So it's a negotiated give and take. During the trading counters, the buyer prefers a lower price, the seller prefers a higher price. Scripture illustrates this repeatedly. Subpoint so B. After the trade encounter, the buyer and the seller can both praise God for their increase. The buyer and seller can both praise God for their increase. The verb that's translated for boasting here can be translated to praise, to worship. It's halal. It's uh, when he goes away, then he worships, then he praises. So praise God. You know, I'm going to praise God for Lydia. 
And, uh, and the price that I paid was lower than I would have been willing to pay. Don't tell my wife that. Um, she would have much you know, preferred a lower price because both the seller, no, no, the seller wants a higher price, the buyer wants a lower price, and the buyer's wife wants a price even lower than that. Okay? All right. But what's 400 shekels between men like us? So both can walk away. Again, I would, I would retranslate here uh, Proverbs 20, verse 14. Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes away, then he praises. Then he praises. Or he boasts. Nothing wrong with let him who boasts boast on the Lord. Praise God for um, his gracious provision. Praise God for the sale price. Praise God for, uh, for the grace that gave you the funds to buy the thing in the first place. You know, the Ananias and Sapphira story is interesting in Acts 5 because they, they failed terribly. But the principle is there. You can glean the doctrine from their failure. They should have praised God for the sale price and then praised God for the donation they made to the church and not lied about it. We don't need to lie about it. All right. So a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Again, it's a commercial transaction. They didn't have to sell it. We, we kind of get the idea because of how chapter 4 ends. You get Barnabas here. This is how he gets his name. He's actually Joseph. But he was also called Barnabas by the apostle, son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land, he sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, good for him. All right, praise God for that. That is not a competition. Just because Joseph did it and got a new name doesn't mean, you know, that you have to do it now. What are you, what are you trying to get a new name? You're trying to get a reputation among the apostles? What are you doing? So as chapter 4 ends, on a good note, chapter 5 begins with a sad story. So a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. All right, good for you. And kept back some of the price for himself. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you can keep all of it if you want to. You could have kept more. So we don't know. I mean, what it is. You know, we could uh, say there's a house, you know, average house here in Austin. That's going up more and more. Um, but whatever the case may be, my pastor's child, my, uh, uh, my childhood pastor's son is moving to Austin and will hopefully be here within a month. Um, got his house in, on the market in Washington State, uh, going to move down here. And, uh, and, and I tell you, I know that the price difference is severe. Washington State is expensive. And um, although he's over on the east side in Wenatchee, but still. Um, Washington State compared to Texas is pretty extreme. Okay, Of course, Austin is pretty pricey within Texas. But whatever the case may be, leave that, in, leave that example alone. Get back to Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? He sells his house. Whatever he sold it for. Sold it for $400,000. Okay? Whatever. He had a nice house. He sold it, but he claims that he sold it for 300000 
because he's going to pocket a hundred grand himself. And he tells everybody that it sold for three hundred, and he gives the three hundred very publicly, very, you know, says this is the this is the whole amount. But no, he kept back some for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. So they were in agreement on this scheme. Bringing a portion of it, he laid at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? He said, you didn't have to do that. Just tell the truth. And here's the economic principle for you in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? The house was yours. You owned it. The ownership of sovereignty, the ownership of, I mean, the sovereignty of ownership, property. You have proprietary rights. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? It is still yours. So the value of it, you sell the house. Now, the house is no longer yours, but the proceeds from that sale. You have just as much sovereignty over the proprietary rights over the sell the sale of the house because you didn't have to sell it, and the amount you sold it for was negotiated between you and the buyer. The buyer didn't have to buy it, and if that buyer didn't want it at that price, maybe a different buyer would have bought it at that price. So whatever the price point is, this is the key price point. That's the market mechanism. The price point. Because if the guy doesn't want to do it, maybe the next guy will. And if enough people say, no, 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 then finally the seller drops the price, brings it down to where he does get a buyer that buys it at that price. The price mechanism. This is the genius of God's design. And that's why Adam Smith was so brilliant to conform himself to God's design. God designed the price point to be the the, uh, negotiated settlement between the buyer and the seller not price controls or the government mandates or anything artificial. That destroys markets. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Extra credit, by the way. Oh my, I am two minutes over. Somebody wave a flag at me. Tell me I'm late. <laughs> if you lie to the Holy Spirit, verse 3, you're lying to God in verse 4. Do you see that? You've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. This is the easiest way to prove that God the Holy Spirit is God. Just with these back-to-back verses right here. It's the simplest place in all the Bible to point to if you're talking to somebody that doubts the, uh, the deity of the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, um, we'll pick up here next week. Sorry about that. I owe you two minutes. <laughs> but what's two minutes between men like us. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the principles of wisdom that we can apply. We can line up with your design for blessing. We can live in defiance of your design and and we just reap consequences and they're bad consequences for defying your design. So Father, we want to function in divine wisdom and we thank you for providing for us in your written word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.